This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com, the official podcast of minor league baseball. My name is Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is my co-host. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. How are you? Trying to be very professional with my intro. It's very buttoned up this week. Very not that you're not up. normally, but you know. Even though I have a, I have a, I have a zip-up hoodie on today, so not buttoned up exactly. But. <laughs> You're, you're buttoned up in the 21st century sense. Similar, exactly, exactly. In the uh, in the pandemic-addled world of ours, where I rarely put on pants that require a belt, um, you know, elastic's where it's at, man. Thank you for adding nice. putting on a belt to that sentence. By the way, <laughs> I rarely put on pants. Period. Yeah. Um, no, hey, welcome into this week's episode of the show. A lot coming up for you today. On uh, we are nearing. Is it 300? What are we at? 292 now. We are, yes. Holy smokes. It's nuts. We're we're getting close. And uh, I would say that I can't believe it. Eh, I can believe it. We've done a lot of these. <laughs> yes, yes, we have. I do remember doing 200. I guess it would have been two years ago. Um, and I was at Yankee Spring Training. I interviewed yeah. Trevor Steffen uh, as part of that, who is now a Rule 5 pick. Uh, and I asked him like, where were you 200 weeks ago? And he was just like, I don't know. I was like, okay, thank you. Uh, but yeah, it's nice to remember like the last time we were doing this, we were all active in spring training and who knows what spring training is going to look at least on our side this year. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. It also feels like it wasn't that long ago. There's a lot that's happened in between, but it also feels very much like yesterday. Certainly true. Yeah. I got a text from a buddy earlier today that was like, Hey, are you going to spring training this year? And I was like, I don't know. I was planning on it. You know, this time last year, my dad and I actually booked a place. We were going to stay uh, together. My dad is, he's gone down to spring training, but we've never gone down together, made it like a joint thing. So I was going to go do a little hybrid work trip and hang out with my dad and catch some baseball. I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. We, we don't know yet. It's the, it's an ever-changing, fast-moving world that we live in these days. So hopefully, um, because we really are about a month out from pitchers and catchers reporting, I think less than a month now from the originally scheduled uh, start dates for spring training with pitchers and catchers reporting. Um, and I don't know, five, six weeks now away from what would ordinarily be the start to spring training games. So we're getting close, which is crazy to think about because, you know, we've all had a lot on our mind for the last uh, month or three or 10 or whatever it is. Right. And and to your point too, is, is right now MLB's planning to start on time. Who knows how that'll change um, given, as you may have heard, we have a new administration here in the United States. Uh, so what that'll mean for COVID policies, countrywide, how that'll affect state-by-state stuff in Florida and Arizona. Will spring training be pushed back? Um, you know, will minor league spring training be pushed back as we expect it to be? Uh, stuff like that. And also, you know, just who's going to be allowed there and all that. What What is even the state of Major League Baseball going into 
2021, like, will there be a DH in the National League? Doesn't sound like that's settled yet. There's still so much up in the air. Obviously, tons of free agents still available to be signed and um, moves are being made all the time. So uh, a crazy world to think about still, even as we creep up on mid-February. And so much to get to on this week's episode of the show before the show. And we uh, thank you for joining us wherever you have downloaded. You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription. You can get in touch with the show podcast at MILB.com. Coming up here in just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by the ninth ranked prospect in the Texas Rangers organization, second baseman, Justin Foscue out of Mississippi State University, the 14th overall selection in last year's Major League Baseball first year player draft. We'll talk with Justin about uh, his time at the alternate site. This time, Mississippi State getting into a professional organization and starting your career in a pandemic year, obviously a conversation that we've had with uh, some prospects over the last 10 months. And hopefully in the next few months, we will finally get back to being able to have conversations like, hey, what's the season like for you? And uh, we're, we're very excited to return to that day at some point soon. Um, so with uh, with that, what uh, what stands out most to you, Sam, this week as we get close? There have been deals. We're going to talk about one here uh, momentarily that'll kick off our conversation. But we two weeks ago had an episode that was loaded last week. Not a whole lot to discuss. This week, it feels like we're kind of getting into those early stretches before spring training. We'll probably start getting prospect announcements on who is getting invitations, depending on the structure of spring training. What has kind of been the, the biggest storyline of the last week to you? Um, good question in terms of like, what's the biggest storyline of the week? Um, I mean, in terms of baseball at large, not to, to start out on a bummer, but, you know, the Mets firing their general manager. Right. Uh, Porter, you know, after news broke by ESPN that uh, an international reporter had received lewd messages from him. I think it was 60 plus, something like that. Uh, that two unanswered text messages, unanswered text messages that were inappropriate in any manner um, sent without her consent. Uh, That's it's, it's nothing new in the world. Unfortunately, it's nothing new in in the industry, but it's just incredibly sad that um, somebody like that, uh, had you know, received those messages from somebody in power. You know, part of that story was that uh, she thought she was maybe talking to a source, somebody she could get information from. We ourselves are journalists. Um, we know what that game is like. Obviously, not entirely what it's like. We're two two men talking, two cis men uh, talking in this conversation here. But um, women deal with that all the time. You think you're you're getting close to a source. The source thinks it's something else and they push something inappropriate. It's something that has to be stricken from our society at large, not just baseball, but it is a baseball problem since we are talking about it here in a baseball context. Um, it was really disappointing. So many women in the game came out and shared their experiences yeah. having gone through this before. Um, it, again, it's, it's nothing new, uh, but that doesn't make it any less wrong. Um, it's, it's really, really disappointing to have it hit home in that way. Uh, and, you know, hopefully it's something that a lot of organizations are going to start looking inward and thinking like, you know, who are we giving jobs to and, and what type of characters do we have in, in this organization? Um, you know, it's, 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 and it's something that we have to look at ourselves too. It's, it's not just like, okay, that's something they have to put off to the side as well. Um, you know, as men, as people who are journalists ourselves, like, and work with others in, in the industry and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff, it, it has to, it should force everybody to look inward and realize what is your behavior, um, 
what do you do to either help the situation or hurt the situation? Uh, and it's something that needs to be generally approved, improved uh, across the board. Um, hopefully this is a reckoning of some sorts, uh, an awakening, even if it is fairly commonplace. And, and I don't say that as an excuse. Um, I'd say that just to acknowledge the situation. Um, you know, we, we hopefully are getting closer to a pl place where it's not commonplace, where it is easier to call it out. Um, you know, this journalist did not feel comfortable coming forward for multiple years out of fear um, for, you know, potentially her job, potentially what the reaction would be in her home country, uh, which I want to make a point of saying we are not going to name here the ESPN story explicitly went out of its way to say we aren't going to mention her home country because she feared ramifications in her home country. Um, it's not something you're going to hear from us. It's not something you should hear from anybody, even if certain individuals did let that slip this week. Um, but just a disappointing situation all around. Um, it, it's going to take, it, it's not just something you can acknowledge and then brush under the rug. It, it needs to come with a reckoning across the board. Again, starting in baseball, but society, uh, across across the board and society at large and you know i think um there was a, a very fitting moment last night jared porter of the mets was fired on uh tuesday the 19th and there was a, a tweet that went kind of viral on baseball twitter that said um kim ang worked 30 years to get the same job as jared porter um who's a, a young guy early 40s who was uh you know given that job by the new york mets and um a uh, a moment last night in the celebration after the inauguration, which Kim Ng was part of now the general manager of the Miami Marlins was part of the inauguration celebration. She read uh, from the uh, inauguration Reagan. And that, I thought that was very powerful. And obviously those two events happened um, very uh, separately from each other. But the fact that there was that moment in the baseball world on Tuesday which shows such an ugly side of what so many women in media have to deal with. And then the next day you see someone who is a, a torchbearer um, for, for women in the industry and for women who want to get into baseball. And, you know, I've broadcasted uh, a few women's baseball world cups now and to hear women who play in those tournaments talk about, how frustrating it is to be shoehorned into playing a different sport, to love baseball, play baseball, and then get to an age where somebody says, well, you have to play softball now. Um, you know, seeing Kim Ng as part of that last night was really, really cool. And um, it's, you know, a moment where, again, just to, to talk about this in the light of the, the positive thing, if I'm a Marlins fan, I feel pretty cool about where this organization is right now uh, with the amount of talent that they have uh, acquired and accumulated and, um, and having somebody who is a trailblazer and a person like Kim Ng, who is uh, at the, the front of her industry now and uh, a really important moment last night. So with that, we'll talk a little baseball. Trade news in baseball, as one would expect in uh, the month of January. Joe Musgrove headed from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the San Diego Padres in exchange for a whole bunch of prospects, actually part of a three-team deal that also involved the New York Mets. Uh, the Padres do not lose any top 100 prospects as they have come so adept at hanging on to those and uh, are still pretty loaded at their uh, at their minor league ranks. But now um, a ridiculous major league starting rotation for the, Pir for the Padres. Um, as far as what the Pirates are getting in this deal and the prospects on the move, Sam. Give us the lowdown. Yeah, so I think the big one here in this trade is uh, Hudson Head, who now becomes the number six prospect in the Pirates system. Um, the fact that he is number six 
in that system kind of tells you the difference between the Padres and, and the Pirates. Uh, he was much lower ranked than six in the, Pir- in the Padres organization, but he moves up to number six with the Bucks. Um, somebody who you know, was a third round pick in 2019 is a plus runner, pretty good arm in, in the outfield. Seems like he's got a pretty good shot of sticking in center field. That brings a lot of value. He is a left-handed hitter, uh, which is big in itself. Um, you're kind of betting on the rest of the tools catching up to his athleticism, uh, but he only turns 20 on April 8th, uh, one one day after my birthday, I will say, but also he was born in 2001 and I was very much not. Um, but Hudson had, I think he's the before big... Before that, let's just clarify. Yes. Sam's not 19. I am not. I already 19. feel old enough on this podcast. <laughs> I, I was born in a different century, millennium, decade, all of those things. Um, but anyways, so... Adding Hudson Head, I think, is, is the big get here for the Pirates. They do add a little bit more depth there, uh, you know, with Drake Fellows, Omar Cruz. They also get Andy Rodriguez from the Mets. They flipped Joey Lucchese. It was a kind of a three-team deal, so I don't know if flipped is the right word. But anyways, they get him uh, a catching prospect from the New York Mets as well. Those guys aren't cracking the top 10 just yet. It's really only head who's doing that. Um, But the pirates they've said this are in a place right now where they just need to deepen their system. Now I wish Joe Musgrove was basically their big ticket that they could trade right now. I mean, sure. They could trade a key Brian Hayes, but they're not going to do that. He's a big piece of their future. Um, Maybe somebody like a Brian Reynolds, but uh, Joe Musgrove seems like the one who is getting a lot of ass this off season for them not to bring in a top 100 prospect. I don't know if that offer was out there. You know, when you bring in multiple players instead of one or two, and what would the trade have looked like if they were able to bring in just one or two, but like Sterling prospects instead of outside the top 100, I think that would have been a better bet, but it doesn't sound like that option was out there. The Padres had a deep system. Um, even after all the other trades they've made this offseason for Blake Snell and for you Darvish, they still had some left there and um, we're still able to, like you said, Tyler, hold on to some of their top 100 guys. I mean, all the their top 100 guys left really. Luis Patino is the only one that they've had to part with, but Mackenzie Gore is still around, C.J. Abrams, Luis Camposano, Robert Hassel III, Ryan Weathers is still around. Um, so how the Padres keep doing this is incredible to me. Um, it, it speaks to the depth of their system. I, you would have to think that some of these other – teams that really need pitching could have matched this deal in some way. But the fact that they continue to keep on trucking uh, is, is really interesting. The pirates do get a little bit deeper, Um, you know, looking at their system now it's definitely top 15. It's not quite where it needs to be, to be a full rebuild, especially if Hayes is going to be graduating pretty quickly uh, in the 2021 season, assuming full health, Uh, but they do have the number one overall pick. They're going to have a ton of high draft picks to add, uh, to that group as well. So the, the arrow is definitely pointing up, um, but unfortunately they had to trade their best pitcher to make that happen. And now Joe Musgrove is the number four starter uh, for, for the San Diego Padres. He, he's behind Snell, Darvish, Nelson Lamette, uh, if, if he's fully healthy. Um, so the Padres certainly have the depth of the rotation. Mackenzie Gore is knocking on that door as well. Um, Ryan Weathers is right there. If they want to keep him as a starter, uh, the list goes on and on. Chris Paddock, uh, is now a number five starter after basically being their ace two years ago. So it's kind of phenomenal that the Padres were able to do this. Uh, we'll see what else the Pirates can pull off, but it's going to take a lot of internal development, I think, at this point to turn this into a top five system that it needs to be for this to be a successful rebuild. 
There's another deal made uh, involving a prospect, um, not major league talent in exchange for him, but uh, C.J. Chatham, now formerly of the Boston Red Sox, is reunited with Dave Dombrowski, the guy who drafted him uh, into the Red Sox organization. Now, C.J. Chatham, a member of the Philadelphia Phillies. Boston will receive either a player to be named later or cash considerations. Um, This move, obviously uh, one that is not a a huge risk for the Phillies with what they're giving up, but um, I think Dave Dombrowski certainly believes that he was right on and what he liked in C.J. Chatham when he picked him and now gets a chance to help with his development continuing. Yeah, I mean, C.J. Chatham, um, this is basically the Red Sox, if you can believe it, given the state of their team right now, had a bloated 40-man roster. They were looking to sign Martin Perez. It was announced that they were re-signing him. Uh, He was a free agent. They're bringing him back after he spent uh, 2020 with the club. But uh, in order to make that happen, they had to – clear somebody off the roster instead of DFAing somebody they found a home for CJ Chatham as as Tyler mentioned Dave Dombrowski now running the Phillies is very you know knowledgeable of the player Um, what CJ Chatham brings to the Phillies right now they have kind of a dearth of middle infield talent they may be looking to sign a DD Gregorius or Anderson Simmons at shortstop this year Um, but as things stand right now they do have you know, not much talent up the middle there. CJ Chatham helps address that. He's played shortstop. He's played a little bit of second base. Uh, his primary driver is his hit tool. Um, he is a, a good hitter. I think he's a career like 297 hitter in the minor leagues, uh, 298, excuse me. Um, he's reached AAA, so he's knocking on that door. The Phillies took Kyle Holder in the Rule 5 draft this year. So Holder is somebody who basically provides the same role as Chatham. He's a better defender. The hit tool is more of a question. Now there's a competition there uh, and there will be even more so if they can sign a free agent shortstop. Um, But if you're the Phillies right now, you need to be adding talent and and you need these competitions. You can't just say like, Hey, we've got a full roster. We're fine. Uh, We'll be good to go. And then somebody has an injury and all of a sudden depth is a real issue. So the Phillies need to be making more moves like this. We'll see what they have up the sleeve. Uh, the good thing for the Phillies about Chatham is that he has options remaining. Holder has to be in the majors or else be offered back to the Yankees. That could be a factor to consider uh, in a spring training competition. But a little bit more depth for the Phils uh, on the dirt can't be a bad thing. And, and we'll see how things work out with Chatham. If you are a Phillies fan listening to this, you want to hear about CJ Chatham. He was a guest on this show a while back. Um, go search through our archives. I don't have the episode type or episode number offhand, um, but just search in our feed and you can find that and talk about his development and what's made him a good hitter uh, and what he was doing during his time in the Red Sox system. And uh, our final point this week, it is list season across the uh, sports and uh, especially baseball publishing uh, landscape, the top 100 lists, positional player lists, uh, organizational top 30s, all of those are arriving over the next few weeks from MLB Pipeline. They're in the middle of prospect position lists right now. So top pitchers and uh, position players and all of that stuff will be coming out. Um, top 100 and organizational top 30s also for 2021 uh, coming on the way from Pipeline. Baseball America, baseball prospectus have their top 100s out. This is a fun time of year. We're getting into our um, preseason stuff here in the next few weeks, which is really exciting. And uh, we just leave all of that work to Sam. So, Sam, good luck. (laughs) Well, I mean, there will be group projects, mind you. We are going to have our farm system rankings. We're going to start putting those together. Um, Again, that's broken down by hitters, pitchers, 
under 21 talent. And then overall, um, maybe we'll mix things up a little bit, throw in an extra category this year. We'll have to see, but uh, we will have our own sort of rankings uh, coming up. Those will be farm system based. I, I can't stress that enough, but yeah, the good folks at MLB pipeline so far, they've done position stuff. They've done right-handed pitchers, left-handed pitchers, catchers. By the time you guys hear this on Friday, uh, the first base list will be out. The second base list is coming out on Saturday and around the horn they'll go January 29th. Um, so next Friday is when they will be revealing their top 100. So be sure to check in for that. Uh, there are some interesting questions that go into these lists this year. I know it feels like there was no minor league season. So what does that mean for the rankings? How are things going to change? Some of these guys played in the majors, so that's going to affect their stock for sure. So guys like Sixto Sanchez, Ian Anderson, people I wrote about for our prospects projections piece, which I encourage you all to go read. Um, they're going to take jumps for certain because of the way they performed in the majors. Uh, Randy Arias Arena, uh, because of the way he performed in the playoffs, he still somehow still has prospect eligibility. So he's going to uh, skyrocket as well. That's, that's one to keep an eye on. Where is he going to rank in top 100s? Um, but again, encourage you to check out pipeline stuff. As Tyler mentioned, Baseball America has their top 100 out. Baseball Prospectus has their top 100 out. I love comparing these lists, just seeing where the industry agrees and disagrees on certain players and um, what that means about those players and, and what they're doing right now. Um, so yeah, we, we encourage you to check that out, that stuff out and keep them peeled as always on MILB.com to see how we're going to be ranking farm systems on, on our own uh, here in the coming weeks and months. And with that, we are going to head to a guy who, as of right now, is a top 10 prospect and is probably uh, going to climb that list here in the coming uh, months and years in his organization. Justin Foscue, second ranked uh, or second baseman, ninth ranked prospect in the Texas Rangers organization, joins the show next. To the Texas Rangers organization and to the state of Arizona, we are so desperate to uh, to feel normal and be talking to guys in Arizona and Florida for spring training. And uh, that is where we find the ninth ranked prospect in the Texas system. Second baseman Justin Foscu joins the show uh, from surprise, getting set for hopefully some normalcy and some baseball real soon. Justin, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So we were just talking before we started recording. Uh, you basically just got to Surprise, just got to Arizona, made a, a lengthy road trip to get there. Um, this is your first full year in a professional organization. And obviously you had the weirdest start to your pro career, as did anybody who was a, a 2020 draft pick. Um, now that you are in Arizona, you're in Surprise, you're you're close to the facility, I would imagine, and you're getting set for it. What are the emotions like for you right now? Is it is it kind of nervy? Are you excited? What is what's the feeling for you at this moment? The feeling the feeling for me is I'm very excited because, um, like you said, we're just trying to find a little bit of normalcy, like with with baseball season, and like uh, I, I think I'd be a little bit more nervous if this was my first if this was my first time with the team and organization. Um, but since I, I went to the alternate side and went to Instructs uh, last year, um, I think I feel a little bit more comfortable with the organization and staff and players that I've met. Um, so right now, it's, I'm just excited, man. I'm excited to get going. Um, you know, it's baseball season and the, the vibe's kind of starting to change um, around this area this time of year. But um, yeah, man, I'm very, I'm very excited. Take us through um, kind of the last few months for you. You're taken in the in the draft. Uh, you get to go to the alternate training site, and we'll obviously talk a lot about that. But when the the alternate site stuff ends, and you get a chance to 
you know, decompressed for a little while. It was such a strange year for high school and college guys because you start your season, stop your season, get drafted, go to the alt site, play kind of games, but sort of not really games. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're back to being shut off for a little while. What have the last few months in the quote unquote off season for this year been like? Yeah. So actually after the alternate site, we had uh, instructs. So I had literally two days to go home and see my family. Um, and then I flew out to Arizona for instructs and we were here till about the end of middle of November. Um, and then I went home to Nashville, Tennessee, where I live now. Um, and I've been just training there for a couple months, um, just working out, hitting, doing defensive stuff um, at my agent's place because he's got a facility there. Um, and then they, you know, they hit me up uh, a couple weeks ago, telling me they wanted me here middle of January. So um, that's basically what it's looked like, man. I just training like everybody else has been, um, trying to stay as healthy as possible um, going into the 21 season. And when you talk about your training regimen right now, you talked about training in, in Nashville. Now you're going to potentially pick that up at the Rangers facility or at least in surprise. But, like, what are you working on right now? What is your focus at this point in the offseason? So right now it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. Um, I think the biggest thing for my player development is probably defensively um, trying to get a lot of speed and agility stuff in, uh, first step quickness, stuff like that. Um, that's where I can take the biggest jump in my game. Um, but obviously I want to work on everything. I'm trying to trying to be a, the most well-rounded player I can be. Um, but offensively, I think I've, I've gained a lot of understanding of how my body, body moves. Um, and that's just, um, training and learning how you're like learning body awareness. Um, you know, I've watched a lot of Josh Donaldson videos on how he, um, on his swing and he talks a lot about body awareness and learning how to connect all of that and creating energy into the ground. Um, and I'm not, and that's what I've really been working on this off season, trying to gain a little bit more knowledge about that. Um, and, and along with just the hitting aspect and defensive aspect, just trying to, uh, stay as strong as possible, just get in the weight room consistently, um, and then trying to be on a clean diet to where um, your body's feeling as fresh as possible going into spring training. And when you do go to spring training, like you said, the, the Rangers have said they hope to have you in big league camp. That's why they want you there earlier to really get you assimilated into the, the system. But how does your time at the alternate site and a little bit at Instructs, but especially at the alternate site when you're literally one step away from the majors, given the way the Rangers ran their alt site. How did that prepare you for what you're expecting here in your first big league camp uh, for spring training and everything that is to follow after that? Yeah, I think, I think just being at the alter, alternate site, um, it got, it gave me a chance to integrate with the, some players that were higher up in the system and maybe on the verge of getting called up. Um, just getting me more comfortable in the organization, meeting all the staff, um, that was the biggest thing for me, um, just just meeting everybody and learning how the Rangers do things. Um, I think I'm like I said, I, I'm I feel more a lot co more comfortable because I've met a ton of the players. Um, I haven't met a ton of big leaguers, but um, I think being in big league camp is giving me is going to give me the opportunity to compete with uh, very talented players and obviously big leaguers um, that have a ton of experience playing baseball, but. Um, you know, that, I'm very excited because, like, like for me, I know I'm probably not going to get called up this year unless something crazy happens. But for me, it's just 
getting out there, trying to develop my game as best as possible, getting the most experience, um, playing with some very talented players. Justin, the uh, story of you going to the Rangers in the first round is one of the draft stories that I love because I think, you know, most people look at the prospect rankings and all that, and I think MLB Pipeline had you ranked 32nd overall. The Rangers take you at number 14, and I talked with Paul Kruger for uh, our listeners. He's Texas's director of minor league operations and talked to him um, for our Rangers State of the System piece, and it just seemed like the, the organization was so keyed in on you, and they knew they wanted you and knew they wanted to pick you. Um, to be selected in that spot and then go get a chance to be in Arlington and all that. What did they communicate to you when you got there about, hey, you're the guy we wanted, this is why we want you in the system, and this is how we're going to make you part of the future for us? Yeah, I think I think it just all starts with, um, like, who I am as a person. I, I know they believe in picking guys that are, you know, very good people. And I think for my fit for their team, I, I, I mean, with my hitting ability – um, with my plate discipline and my approach, uh, I think it just fits um, their their style of play. Um, they they told me like they they believe in my abilities. Um, they just want me to go out there and play. Like um, so, I don't feel any pressure with being picked 14th overall. I don't believe in any of that. I think I just need to go out there and play my game um, and trust their their training staff to develop me. And uh, I think everything will happen you know, the way it's supposed to be. I'm not going to stress about any of that. Um, but they've communicated me like they believe in me. And that's what they've told me. They've, uh, they've told me that many times. So um, I appreciate them telling me that because that definitely takes a lot of stress off my shoulders. You mentioned, uh, you know, getting a chance to just know guys in the organization uh, at the alternate training site. One of the things the Rangers have right now is such a, a glut of really talented position player prospects. And I would imagine that's really cool for you to get mixed into a group that's got so many other guys who, uh, you know, maybe don't play your exact same position, but that you get to work with on the infield. Josh Young is their uh, top prospect, and Young was taken uh, as a first rounder a couple years ago. He's at third base. Maximo Acosta is a shortstop. Uh, Anderson Tejeda is a shortstop. Uh, Shirton Apostle can play the corner spots. David Wenzel, who was a first-round pick in 2019 as well, uh, as a third baseman. To get into a group like that has got to be really cool um, to have fellow prospects. What was it like getting to work with some of those guys? It's really cool, man. I, I think the coolest part about it is they've come where I've come for like Davis and Josh both went to four-year colleges in Baylor and Texas Tech, and that's something I have in common with them. Um, when I got to alternate site, Shirton was there. He's a really cool dude. He kind of just welcomed me into the Rangers organization. Um, and then working with Maximo this, this past fall was very impressive. I, I think he's one of the best infielders I've ever worked with. Um, and I purposely did drill work with him because – I feel like if I did drill work with him, I got a lot better just doing it with him. So, um, and then obviously, um, Tejeda is one of the best fielders I've watched. I only got to play with him a couple of days in alternate site, and then he got called up again. Um, so that was pretty cool to just experience that. Um, just working with all those guys, man, it's just a great experience. I've gained a ton of knowledge from all of them about how pro ball works. Um, and I actually room with Josh, so. Um, just sharing a lot of, of a lot of knowledge with all of them um, has been the biggest part to my game so far, and I'm excited to keep working with all of them. And when you're talking about the work that you've put in uh, on the infield and and working with all those guys, getting to see them work, uh, have you only played second base so far? I know you you've got a little bit of experience all over the infield, given your time in uh, Mississippi State, but have you been exclusively focused at 
at second, or are you playing other positions? They have really just focused me at second base. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. I don't know if that really matters, but they obviously <laughs> want me to have some versatility. They obviously want me to have some versatility. They've told me that, like, hey, anything can happen. Um, but pretty much all in alternate site and instructs, I was at second base. Oh, fair enough. All right, let's get into your offensive game then a, a little bit. Um, one thing that stood out to me, uh, well, there's many things that stood out to me, but one thing that stood out to me was that you, as a freshman, you got to play 58 games, uh, basically a full season, um, didn't quite put up the numbers. You took the leap as a sophomore, got to play on the U.S. collegiate national team. Then we're putting up numbers again this last spring now as a junior uh, before things got cut off at 16 games. You had a 973 OPS. You were hitting 321, slugging 509. Um, what do you think was possible for you in the spring? Because it, it certainly seemed like your trajectory was on the way up, and obviously that points to a, a mid-first-round pick for you. But what do you feel like you could have done in your last season on campus if things yeah, hadn't been canceled in the way that they were? I think the biggest thing that nobody really thinks about is I think I could have kept my strikeouts below 10. Um, I was really locked in um, during that, that part of the season. I think I'd only struck out three times, and I think maybe one of them was a bad call. Um, so I, I pride myself on not striking out. I pride myself on plate discipline and my approach. And when I think of all those three things combined, I, I think everything else will take care of itself. I think of like the home runs, doubles, um, the average, that all takes care of itself. If you can control what you can control at the plate. Um, and that's what, and, and that's what I've stressed more to anybody. And I, I told the younger guys, it's like, you control what you can control at the plate and all the numbers will take care of itself. Um, so that means approach. That means, you know, play discipline, all those things that go in the, in the count. But um, I think I could have had a pretty good year. I, um, I think things obviously worked out for me. Um, but I was very upset the season ended, obviously, because uh, we could have been the three college world series um, in a row. And I don't think anybody, any team has ever done that before, um, or at least at Mississippi State. So, um, but to answer your question, I think I could have had a pretty good year. I probably, if I was locked in the whole year, I probably would have hit 20 home runs. Um, I say that, but that's just me being confident. But, um, yeah. Honestly, I love that you brought up the three strikeouts, especially that detail about one of them being a bad call, um, because that, that was going to be my <laughs> follow-up, is just looking at the numbers. And I know it was early season. It was only 16 games. But you struck out three times in 69 plate appearances. You walked 15 times. I mean, that's a crazy strikeout-to-walk ratio under any uh, sample. Um, but you talked before about with Josh Donaldson watching a lot of his video in terms of body awareness. So, and you also talked there about controlling what you can control, but putting the ball into play, especially now and when, when strikeouts are taking off in the way that they are, uh, it seems right. incredibly hard. So what is your approach to cut down on the strikeouts while still tapping into that power? And like you said, potentially hitting 20 homers in a spring. Um, I think it, I think it has a lot to do with like each person. Like for me, I know I have very good hand-eye coordination. I have very good vision um, with my eyes. I can predict where the ball ends up probably better than a lot of other people. Um, so you have to be blessed with that ability. Um, but I definitely think you can work on that. Uh, I think playing MLB the show helps all the time for me because um, you're obviously tracking the ball. I know that sounds crazy, but I tell a lot of people that I just play MLB the show all day and I know where the ball I'm tracking the ball with my eyes so many times a day. Uh, so that helps. 
Um, That's what I'm going to start telling people. The, when I play the show, I'm going to start telling people. I'm just trying to make it I'm, as I, a big I'm, leaguer. I'm just – that's why I'm, I'm playing. you, if you play MLB the show, it should help a little bit with your plate discipline, all right? Um, you heard it here first. So, no, but I think I think having the awareness um, of the count, you got to know what you want to do before you go up to the plate. Um, all of that takes – you know, all of that goes into account, like when you're, when you're in and at bat, um, what kind of situation it is. Uh, all of that. I mean, like, hitting is a very tough thing to do. Um, but if you try to keep it simple, you, you, you make you have a plan for yourself before you go up to the, up to the plate. Um, it should make it a little bit a little bit easier. All right, Justin, I got to ask you about a, another element of your offensive game. Um, in high school, I was reading on your Mississippi State biography, you went 37 for 38 in stolen bases in a single season, um, which set your high school's uh, single-season program record. The the wave of the game now in college and at the professional level is obviously so, I don't want to say against stolen bases, but stolen bases have become such a smaller element of the game. And I know in college, I think you only had seven attempted stolen bases. Is it frustrating at all to be somebody who can run and run well um, and obviously is very successful at it, and it's not really an element of the game that many people deploy anymore? Is that frustrating at all, or, or is it okay that you don't have to worry about that now? Well, I, I think my game kind of shifted um in college to more of a production kind of hitter instead of a, you know, was and steel kind of steel bags kind of player. I think I gained 20 more pounds in college. And so that made it a little bit tougher for me to steal bases. Um, and that wasn't my role on the team. We had some speed guys on the team that needed to steal bases. Um, and, and also our team was so loaded offensively. We didn't need to steal bases. Um, and that's how it was like, with Mississippi state. We had so many good players like, I think at one point during my freshman or sophomore year, like coach said, literally don't steal. Like you just <laughs> go hit doubles, go hit home runs. And you don't need to worry about getting, you know, bags. Like you need to hit doubles and home runs. Um, so that kind of changed my mindset of it. But working with the Rangers here, I've talked to some of the staff here and they've talked, they've talked a little bit about me with war and stolen bases. Definitely is one of those things that goes into account with war mm-hmm. and, Stolen bases doesn't just have to be a straight-up stolen base. It can be a delay steal. It can be a trail runner. It can be any of those things. Um, so I, to answer your question, I, I think base running has kind of shifted to, from just stealing bases to being a good base runner and having awareness when you're on the bases of where you need to get to if someone hits the ball in the field. Um, maybe that is, you know, ball down the line and you're on the first base. You need to score. Like, that, that's what it needs to be be like in the big leagues because that's what wins games. It's a good answer. Um, so I think that's the most thing, the best, that's the thing I've learned the most from this past fall with base running is not so much just stealing bases straight up, just being an overall good base runner. And, and it's fascinating to hear you mention war like that. I don't think we've ever had a prospect just bring up wins re- above replacement like that and how it might affect your game in terms of how you're evaluated what are some other ways that the Rangers have worked on? You know, you mentioned uh, Mississippi State. They told you not to steal at all. And then the Rangers said, change that a little bit. Um, what are some other ways in terms of your offensive game that the Rangers have already worked with you at the alt site, at instructs, even given you instructions to work on in the offseason? You know, man, they, they kind of just let me be um, with my offensive side. But, uh, like, like they, because they, like, like, like I said, I was like, they trust me and my ability to hit, 
they kind of, I think what the point of it was was they just wanted to see how I do, see what see how I go about things offensively, and then maybe coming in the next couple of months or something they'll they'll tell me what they think. But they they really just let me be um, last year at an alternate side in the instructs. All right, fair enough. And uh, one question I wanted to bring up because I, I was looking, you know, in doing research for this story. Again, I talked before about your time with the collegiate national team. Uh, just to bring up some of the other guys on that roster, I'm sure people at home have heard of some of these players, like Spencer Tor- Torkelson, Austin Martin, Patrick Bailey, Heston Kerstad, um, some of the pitchers on that team, like Max Meyer, Reed Detmers, Asa Lacey, uh, Cole Wilcox, Kate Cavalli, who we just had on the show recently. What was the lasting impact of your time on that team? Um, because I, I know you went from uh, you know playing in the summer – you were in the perfect game collegiate baseball league for a time the previous summer. Then you go to the U.S. college national team. I'm sure the talent level is vastly different there. But what do you think the lasting impact of you spending some time on that team will be for you? Well, to be honest, man, all I can remember was it wasn't fun to face any of those pitchers. <laughs> I might have gotten one hit. And then hitting batting practice with Spencer Torkelson and Heston Kerstad was – a lot of fun because they can hit those balls really, really far. Um, and it was just fun to talk shop with them. Um, but no, like all of those guys on that team were great people. Um, it was, it was a great experience to play with all of them. And, and then I'm super happy for all those guys that got picked really, really high. Um, but it was just, it was a great experience to go across the, across the world and, and to, to Japan with all of them and see how they go about their business every single day. And, um, see all of us compete on the same team playing for your country. But um, it was a great experience, and um, I was very fortunate to be put on that team. One thing that's so cool about that collegiate national team is the the lower level teams will play in World Cups and you know uh, Pan Am games and all that type of stuff. But for the collegiate national team, it's really these exhibition series that you play against Cuba or Japan or Taiwan or whoever, like you said. Um, to be in a, a circumstance where you're playing these series against really talented players from other parts of the globe, what is that dynamic like for you guys? Because you're playing, especially you know, going to play against a a squad like a, a Cuban team that um, USA Baseball hosts pretty regularly, um, or the young players from Japan or wherever they play such different styles in in a lot of ways um it's probably different just in terms of the baseball than anything you've ever seen what was that dynamic like right uh playing cuba was pretty funny i think we are i think their old team was loaded with 30 year olds and up so that was kind of <laughs> different for me um they literally just did not run down the line if they just hit a ball and play unless it was a hit so i thought that was really funny just watching them play um all of them are like they, when like they get an out at first base, they throw the ball around like ten times before they get yeah. it back to the pitcher, um, which is pretty funny. Um, and then going to Japan and, and playing against Taiwan and Japan, that's where it gets a little different with the style of play. Like they bunt, they hit and run, like literally every play. They don't just try to hit. Like so, like me as a second baseman, I'm like having to creep in and play halfway almost the whole game because you have no idea who's going to bunt or who's going to hit. Um, and it's just a very fast-paced kind of style of baseball. Um, and then the, the the fields were all dirt, um, or at least the infield was all dirt. So that yeah. was an adjustment you have to make. So, um, but it was really neat just kind of learning how they play. They go about playing baseball versus how we play baseball. Um, 
but no, it was, it was a pretty cool experience. All right, Justin, well, we have just a few more here to end on, but first, just generally, uh, we've touched on a lot of things about being part of the Rangers organization now, getting yourself acquainted with your, your fellow infielders and your fellow prospects. Um, but it, it's, it's no secret that the Rangers are kind of in the midst of a rebuild right now. You know, coming off last year, they were 22 and 38, worst record in the AL. They're going to have an, another high pick uh, this year. They just traded Lance Lynn, brought in some, some more young talent and Dane Dunning as part of that trade. Um, you know, how much do you guys shoulder as young prospects in terms of what's driving the future of Texas? Because it, it does seem like there's going to be a little extra added emphasis on that minor league system going into 2021. Right. I think you have to keep that in mind. I think going to the park every single day, you, you got to like fight for a spot. Like with a young group like we have in the Rangers org, anybody can get called up at any time. And I think that's the biggest thing is you got to come to the ballpark every single day trying to prove something. Um, and I think all the guys here understand that. And I feel like if all of us get called up kind of at the same time or not at the same time, but we all understand we're kind of in a group that if we develop, we can be pretty dangerous here in a couple of years. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, we understand that the Rangers are in a kind of a rebuild right now. And you kind of just got to go to the park every single day with something to prove, um, because nothing's guaranteed in pro baseball. All right, well, this one's going to be the last one for me. We're going to end on two fun ones. Tyler has one, too. But for me, but this is the Minor League Baseball podcast. You know, doing research on you, it, it sounds like you grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, going to Grissom High School. Um, Huntsville used to be the home of the Huntsville Stars. They used to be a Brewers affiliate. Uh, what do you remember about that team? And now the, the new team moving in. I know you said you, you've moved to Nashville recently, but uh, – the new team moving in is the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Like, what is yep. what is the reaction back home to a team coming in, and what do you remember about those Stars years? I think the vibe around Huntsville, Madison area is um, it's it's growing. I think everybody's excited and about the 2021 season. Um, I know everybody was disappointed that last year got canceled because that would have been the first year that the Trash Pandas had a season. Um, so I think that just makes everybody even more excited. Um, to have just a minor league team in, in the Huntsville area. Um, what I remember about the Huntsville Stars was watching, I think, Alcides Escobar, maybe Prince Fielder, um, some of those guys that were in the Brewers organization. Um, I didn't know who they were at the time, obviously. I just went to the games. But um, to, to have their baseball cards and maybe a few bobbleheads from when they played at the Stars, like I think that's pretty cool. Um just, just, just growing up, going to those games, it was pretty fun. Like I didn't obviously know the, you know, the impact they had on, on like they were in Double A. I didn't know what they were doing. I was just going to a baseball game. But um, I think everybody's excited to have a team back in Huntsville. Um, and that, I know I don't think the Double A for the Rangers is in that league, but I think that'd be pretty cool if I got a chance to play in that stadium in front of my hometown one day. That is pretty awesome. All right, Justin, last one for you. Um, a few years ago on on baseball Twitter, on baseball uh, Instagram, on baseball everything, a thing went viral from the place that you got to call home for your college baseball career in Duty Noble Field, Dement Stadium, Mississippi State. And that is there are apartments with balconies just beyond the left field pavilion 
at that ballpark. And the place looks incredible. I mean, the ballpark was was largely renovated ahead of the 2019 season. I believe it's the largest uh, on-campus collegiate baseball stadium in America. Um, and it just looks incredible. The atmosphere playing there, I want to hear about first. And secondly, did you ever get to go hang out in those apartments? All right, so... Number one, it's the best place to play college baseball. The best by far. It's not even close. <laughs> I don't know what I don't, I don't. I'm being serious. Like I don't under. I don't know how you can compare that to any stadium in the country. Um, the 2019 Super Regional versus Stanford was the most electric environment I've ever played in front of. Um, and there was some pretty big plays that happened during that game that the stadium just went berserk. Um, and I think because of that. That has given me a lot of uh, like it gives me experience to play in big time moments in front of a ton of fans. Like yeah. you go from that to then to Omaha, Omaha is nothing because Omaha is quiet the whole game. Maybe <laughs> a few cheers when a big play happens, but Duty Noble is electric the whole game. Um, so th- there's so th- many neutral fans in Omaha. There's fans there for the other schools yeah, and people neutral, who just live there. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's just playing at Duty Noble. Everybody is there for Mississippi State. Um, so that it's just a great experience. I'm so happy that I got an opportunity to play there. Um, that was the best part. Like, that was the best four, three years of my life playing there. Um, and then the the lofts that they just put up there, like, it just makes it even better. Like, it's just – you're hitting those lofts in BP um, <laughs> before a game. It's just it's just a ton of fun. Um I remember one of my friends, I th- I, uh, Jordan Westberg, who went 30th overall. Yeah. He hit a ball and hit. It went in a uh, someone's beer can, like <laughs> literally right in front of the loft <laughs> before a game, like or a beer cup right in front of like it was just like those little moments. Like that's what makes like college baseball. <laughs> I feel like. Um, and I actually did get to go up there and experience what what that looks like up there in the twenty yeah the twenty nineteen regional we played during the day and then there was a night game Miami played in the night um, so we went to watch that game up there and it's just an incredible view which um, you could see the whole stadium uh, it's it, it's the best stadium in college baseball and I'm I'm very very fortunate enough to you know play there for three years. That is awesome. Justin Fosky is the ninth-ranked prospect in the Texas Rangers organization and uh, is already in Arizona getting set for spring training whenever it gets going next month or March or whenever for position players and uh, minor leaguers across the spectrum. And, Justin, we can't thank you enough, man, for uh, for making all the time for us and uh, and glad you made it to Arizona safely. You were telling us it was a 27-hour road trip. And uh, congrats on, on your safe arrival. And uh, we'll be following along this year, man. Best of luck. Hey, thanks, guys, for having me. We'll stay in touch. The future father, Benjamin Hill, is here. Hi, Ben. Hello, Tyler. Hello, Sam. Hello to my future child. (laughs) Go and listen to every single podcast segment that I was ever a part of as as, uh, part of his or her her deep interest. uh, Make it a requirement. You're going to be a parent. You can tell them to do it. Yeah, and, and there's one thing, that, one thing the kids love, love to do is listen to their parents. Absolutely. And be told to do things. <laughs> and be told, yeah. <laughs> follow, they follow commands very well. First time I did that, it was, it was kind of like a joke, but now I really am just going to introduce you as future father until <laughs> the child arrives, um, which is coming up soon, like a month. Very exciting yeah. for all of us, for all yeah. of you. 
Yeah, February 26th, due date. Crazy. Um, well, let's get into a lot of good stuff to talk about with Ben today. Um, a story that is up on the site that uh, these are some of my favorite pieces that Ben puts together, um, kind of looking back at, at his time traveling around the miners and um, the things that he's come across and stuff that he's kept. And there is a, uh, a story that is up about Ben's sort of MILB memory box in some mementos from the road. Uh, this is so great. It goes all the way back. Uh, the first one that you've got in here with photos, at least, is from uh, 2011, uh, the summer that you and I first met, Ben which I oh, know yeah. was, the, was the big highlight of your, of your year. Um, and actually I lied because there is an earlier one from 2010 uh, in there as well, which is uh, the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers 2010 holiday gift card. But there's such good stuff in here. Tell us about this story and, uh, and some of your favorite items. Well, you know, I'll preface this by saying that really since I was a kid, at least like late middle school, high school, I've just had this tendency of like keeping, you know, souvenirs, you know, not big, hefty, pricey stuff, but, ticket stubs or things I wrote or, uh, you know, some crazy religious tract someone passed me on the street. Uh, and so that's just always been kind of something I've done my whole adulthood is I have like a shoebox under my bed or somewhere and I just throw sort of the detritus of the day that I feel is just kind of interesting or tells a story into it. And, you know, I live in a New York City apartment uh, in Brooklyn and uh, as you mentioned, I got a kid on the way and, you know, I, I try not to be too much of a pack rat, but I have just a lot of things uh, from my life, like souvenir boxes. And a lot of that is obviously related to minor league baseball and all my travels. Uh, they've been, you know, kind of stacked up on some top closet shelves and I'm trying to hold on to them as uh, space gets more and more tight. And I pulled down uh, one of the boxes or technically it was a bag. And I was like, I got to start looking at this minor league stuff I've kept through the years. And the bag I pulled out was 2010, 2011 era stuff. And it's just kind of a treasure trove. And each one tells a story, you know, game scripts, you know, a game script being, you know, what the front office staff uses during a game to know what's what entertainment and, you know, sponsor shout outs and everything is happening, you know, at every inning break. You know, I have game scripts and, of course, a lot of media passes and ticket stubs and game programs and uh, menus from restaurants I visited or, as I just put up on Twitter earlier, a brand of, of a, a bag of potato chips, I guess, because I liked the way it looked. And it was a regional brand from Iowa I hadn't heard before, heard of before. And it just goes on and on. And I just thought, what am I going to do with this? And I still don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm trying to figure out a master plan of sharing a lot of this stuff. I don't think it'll all be articles on the site, but that's what I started with. Uh, this article with just kind of picking out stuff from my uh, mill memory box, the minor league memory box. And um, yeah, the first one in there is uh, from Inland Empire, the Inland Empire 66ers in San Bernardino. And, um, you know, I visited on a low key Monday and they just made it owed to bloggers night, I guess, because I was visiting, but they also invited some local bloggers. So I had the media pass from that. They had me MC a between inning contest and I, and I share the, uh, the uh, list of trivia questions from that related to Cole Calhoun's stats at that current moment in May 2011 for the 66ers of whom he was then playing for, you know, just these random things. I'm like, wow, why do I still have this? And just trying to tell the stories behind them. And so I've got, you know, combined maybe 10 or 12 examples in this first story, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, rabbit holes to go down, you know, things like, uh, the Christmas card sent out by the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers or holiday card technically uh, in 2010, which had the team posing around a snowman uh, that had been built on the field uh, following their snowed out opening day in 2010. And um, you may know that that snowman was then beaten up and destroyed with a baseball bat by Scooter Jeanette. And that moment was immortalized with a bobblehead. 
So yeah, rabbit holes. You can just go down them forever in minor league baseball. And this is my attempt to uh, start exploring them just a little bit. Yeah. And, and with all the stuff that you have, I mean, you put out a call on Twitter about this. Um, you know, what other ideas do you have or what else are you thinking about doing with all this stuff? Because this is just a small taste, knowing what your desks look like, at least at the old office when we used to go into the old office, um, the amount of stuff you have and the amount of memories you can share. So what other plans do you have for something like this, whether it's an article or something else? Well, you know, if we're speaking big picture, uh, I'd love to uh, have a place where I could you know, A, if I ever lived in a house, I'd love to devote, you know, a basement or something like that to kind of creating my own personal uh, minor league baseball museum of this stuff. Or I'd love to have a quirky, uh, you know, museum exhibit at a place, you know, there's a place uh, in Brooklyn, the city reliquary, you know, a place like that that kind of has more off the beaten path, uh, you know, exhibits dedicated to that kind of thing. Uh, that's my long-term goal that, you know, I have not made any real strides toward. Um, but I'm thinking about ways to share this, you know, uh, check it out at Ben's Biz on Twitter, kind of put up a thread today just saying, you know, how do I best share this? And also, um, I want other people and people listening to this podcast, you know, if you have just things that you've collected through the years, it doesn't have to be a certain type of thing, but just souvenirs that to you spark a very specific memory or tell a story, whether you're a minor league fan or worked in the game or whatever, um, I can definitely see follow-up articles, not with my stuff, but with things that people submitted. Uh, so I'm definitely going to try to go down that route and just also think of ways to share, you know, whether it's a daily Twitter post just featuring one item, uh, you know, maybe getting on Instagram live or something of that nature and just kind of digging through the box and telling stories. Uh, I think there's a lot of avenues to go. There's no rush. This stuff will stay here. It's well, it's stayed here this long, so we'll see. And uh, just trying to have some fun with it. And if you're into, uh, you know, ephemera, miscellany, uh, the hodgepodge of things that one collects just incidentally through a lifetime of travel and having a deep interest in, you know, minor league baseball and American culture, then uh, please join me and we'll figure it out together. Uh, the baseball world, unfortunately, has had to say goodbye to a lot of Hall of Famers over the last uh, year plus, and uh, even just as of a couple of days ago with the passing of Don Sutton. Uh, Ben's been chronicling some of the all-time greats in baseball history, including uh, a story that is up on the site right now. Phil Necro, who passed away on December 26th at the age of 81, uh, remembered for his knuckleball, of course, and uh, his nickname, Nuxy. What is so interesting about Phil Necro is, and you kind of don't really think, you think about the longevity of his career and the fact that he pitched until he was almost 50, but you don't really think about the flip side of that, which Ben points out. It wasn't until he was 28 years old that he really solidified himself as a major leaguer, um, and he pitched all over the place in his minor league days until uh, establishing those major league credentials yeah it's wild you know most minor league players because they are or not minor league players hall of fame players because they uh you know obviously had elite talent most of the time when you do a story about their minor league careers you don't have too much to draw from because they played a season or a season and a half and then bam they were there at age 21 22 whatever to play the better part of two decades you know at, at a, as a hall of fame caliber player uh, Phil Necro was not like that. He made his debut in what was it, 1959 and spent the better part of the 60s um, just bumping around, bouncing around the minor leagues as he, you know, honed the knuckleball and figured things out. And that's just the crazy thing about him. I mean, I remember my first exposure to Phil Necro was through Topps baseball cards, 86, 87. 
and just seeing pictures of him and being like, and the stats on his back were Mike on the back of the card were microscopic because he pitched for so long and he had white hair and he, you know, looked like he's somebody's grandfather. And I'm like, this dude is still pitching in the major leagues. He always fascinated me going back to being a kid. He pitched 5,404 major league innings, which is I think in the top three or four of all time. And certainly the most of anyone who played in the latter half of the 20th century. And yet for all that, he spent like, the better part of six seven seasons in the minor leagues on top of all that mostly in a relief role so uh yeah i just you know studied that and uh kind of like it's a kind of companion piece of sorts to the piece i did on a uh, tommy lasorda who kind of similarly he was in baseball for so long tommy lasorda was you know he pitched for 15 years before he even transitioned to coaching so there's a lot to explore there so phil micro you know starting his career in the new york penn league for the Wellsville Braves, Wellsville, New York. And that's not a town I know too much about, but, uh, you know, pitching for the AAA Louisville Colonels uh, in Jacksonville during their relatively short-lived time as the South Atlantic League team. Um, he pitched uh, in one of the first seasons uh, for the Richmond Braves, uh, his last minor league stop, um, McCook, Nebraska in 1960, I believe. And his... Uh, when he pitched for the McCook Braves in the Nebraska State League, one of his teammates was uh, Pat Jordan, who went on to write a, a really well-regarded minor league baseball memoir of his own playing days called A False Spring, which uh, I keep meaning to check out. I've actually not read that yet, but just thinking like, wow, so that uh, really well-regarded minor league memoir was uh, about a guy who crossed paths with Phil Necro in McCook, Nebraska in 1960. So there's just so much to explore. And, you know, just like the just like my own personal, you know, minor league memory box, my own archives, you know, just the career of a veteran player, especially one who pitched in a different era or started his career in a different era, uh, just provides so much to explore. So I've been enjoying doing that as well and going down these rabbit holes and sharing some minor league history. And, and Ben, given your look back here at Phil Necro's minor league career, um, some of these places are still minor league towns. One is a major league town in Denver, but you've got Louisville, Richmond, Jacksonville, are still minor league places. Austin kind of is round rocks, not very far off, but McCook, Nebraska, and Wellsville, New York. Um, which were, when you were looking back at these, were any of these teams your favorite to kind of look back and remember or wish they still existed or were just fun minor league names? Well, you know, most of the names of the teams are pretty boring. Most of them were named Braves. You know, I thought Wellsville, New York, or, or Wellsville, McCook were interesting because those are just places I've never personally associated with minor league baseball. And I kind of need to learn more about what those places uh, were about, you know, the Austin team he played for was the senators and um, you know, they're called the senators because Austin is the state capital. And that just had me looking at, uh, you know, Austin's minor league history. And so they had a lot of teams through the senators uh, called the senators through the years, but for a couple seasons, they had a team named the representatives, which I just loved uh, the Austin <laughs> representatives. Like, that's our team, the representatives. Who do they represent? Themselves. They're the representatives. I just kind of liked that name, uh, the Austin representatives. I mean, the and, stadium has to be called the house, right? It should have uh, been. I, I, I like it. To go back and look into that. Did the Austin representatives play at the House of Representatives? They really, they really should have, or at least it should have been a colloquially referred to as such. Um, so it was fun to... to dig around there and yeah when phil necro played for richmond you know he wasn't playing he was 27 i believe and uh, he was not there in a rehab context he's in triple a at age 27 he was 1.4 years older than the average player on that team and he went on to become a major league pitcher 
Hall of Famer and throw more than 5,000 innings in the major leagues. I mean, how many pitchers were in the minors at a point where they were at AAA and older than the average player and then still went on to have a Hall of Fame career? It's just kind of insane. Pretty amazing stuff. And the story is up on the site right now at MILB.com as well as uh, the Mementos piece, which you can check out at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz too. And uh, Ben, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz and on Instagram at the Ben's Biz. And this was uh, is an, an interesting conversation, man. It's fun to look back, especially as we're kind of getting geared up. Hopefully, you know, Sam and I just got off the phone with Justin Foskey from the Rangers and he's already in Arizona getting set for spring training and just feeling like maybe we're back in the realm of having some minor league baseball again is, uh, is pretty great. And being able to reminisce on some stuff is, is a nice way to, to get ourselves in that frame of mind. Yeah, absolutely. I've been enjoying it, but at the same time, I've been going a little bit like, Oh man, it's mid January. It's, it's time to stop looking back all the time and start writing about what yeah. is now. True. And uh, yeah, I think we all feel a little trapped in this endless off season. And there is a part of me that as much as I love these looking back stories I'm looking forward to, once again, reporting on things happening in the here and now. And that's obviously taking a lot longer than uh, usual. And it's a whole set of complicated circumstances. But I feel like the, uh, the end of this era is near. I feel like we're at the beginning of the end. Knock on wood. And uh, hopefully I'll have a lot more uh, reporting on the modern day coming soon. Can't wait. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Sam. I got nothing. Uh, I can't think of a funny thing to say on the way out. But goodbye. And that will just about do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Before we depart and send you on your merry way toward the weekend, uh, Sam has this week's Nationwide Prospect Fact of the Week. Yeah, so this one uh, is going to be a shout out to Roberto Clemente. We're recording this on January 21st, 2021, 1-21-21, uh, as the Baseball Hall of Fame reminded me this morning, which had me thinking about Roberto Clemente and um, how... It's my personal opinion, and this is just speaking, you know, as a baseball fan and a baseball writer and a baseball lover, uh, that Roberto Clemente's number 21 should be retired across the major leagues. Um, I I hope that's something that could happen someday, given all he means uh, to Latino players and just the sport in general, uh, the stances he took, the type of player he was, um, the way he died, unfortunately, you know, trying to help the people of Nicaragua. Lots of reasons why I think Roberto Clemente's number should be retired. You're wide. I actually have a Roberto Clemente jersey here that I've been wearing while we record. So if I sound a little bit more inspired this week, uh, that's why. But this is a stat-based category. So I'm just going to read you guys his numbers the one year he played minor league baseball with Montreal in the Brooklyn Dodgers system. And I'll get to that in a moment. Roberto Clemente in his age 19 season in 1954 hit 257 with a 286 on base percentage, uh, 372 slugging. That's an OPS of 657. He had two homers and only one stolen base in 87 games. You might be sitting there at home thinking this is an all-time great. This is a guy who uh, arguably the best right fielder of his generation. We can mix that in there, but one of the best outfielders of his generation, no doubt Hall of Famer. Why was he putting up just an OPS of 657 in his one year of the minors. The story is, which you might know, you might be shouting into your listening device at home. If you know the story, this isn't for you. This is for everybody who doesn't. Roberto Clemente was actually a rule five pick. Uh, The Brooklyn Dodgers signed him, according to Sabre. He 
was signed for a salary of $5,000 as well as a bonus of $10,000. Now, major league rules at the time indicated that anybody who had a bonus and salary of more than $4,000 automatically had to be on the major league team for two years or else they were put into what was became the rule five draft. It was called the off season draft. Um, so if you weren't on the major league team, despite having that salary, then you were automatically eligible. Um, the Dodgers didn't think they had a place for Roberto Clemente, despite signing him for that sum. Um, word has come out since that race may have played a factor in that. Unfortunately, uh, it was the 1950s. It's a little crazy that we're talking about the Brooklyn Dodgers in that way, but that's just the way things were because he was what was called a bonus baby uh, and was going to be eligible for the rule five draft. The Dodgers actually tried to hide him. They did try to not allow him to get that many at bats from Montreal. They actually allowed him to hit with the pitchers instead of the position players, hoping scouts wouldn't look at him at all. The Pittsburgh pirates, still saw something in him, scooped him up with the first pick in the following Rule 5 draft, obviously played the rest of his career with Pittsburgh, never played for another team uh, before he passed away. But kind of crazy situation that Roberto Clemente started his career in the Dodger system, was scooped up in the Rule 5 draft because, let's face it, they did not treat him well, uh, and they missed out on, as I said, an all-time great player, uh, and hopefully he can be honored as such by the league across all 30 teams. Good message to end on today. And uh, that will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. If you want to get in touch, podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykstra, MILB. I am at Tyler Mon, and uh, we will talk to you next week.